Hey, Russo here at George Mason University. I'm here today with Brian Downhauer, Jen Kraus, and Jamie McMullen. Um, we're going to share some exciting news about active schools. Um, Brian and Jen are from the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. And Jamie McMullen used to be there, but now has flown off to Hawaii. And she is now at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Um, probably a better weather change, but less snow. So you can't ski there. Pros and cons, pros and cons. Um, so welcome to all uh, three of you. Thanks for coming on. Um, I guess we can just kind of roll right into this and I'll, I'll start off with you, Brian. Um, I'm wondering if you can inform those people who don't know much about this or those people that just need a little reminder of what Active Schools is um, just in general. What are we what are we talking about? Yeah, sure. So just a little brief history about Active Schools. Um, it started back during the Obama administration. It was Michelle Obama's first lady campaign um, or initiative. It was called Let's Move Active Schools. Um, it had many different branches and arms focusing on school health more broadly. It had a nutrition piece, it had gardens, it had all sorts of stuff. And, and one of these branches was the, the movement in school, the physical activity um, initiative. And so it's been around for a really long time. Um, after you know the administration change, uh, it basically became its own entity and shifted into the name Just Active Schools. Um, it's had a few home or organizations over the years. Um, currently, it, its whole organization is Action for Healthy Kids, which is a nonprofit that focuses on school health. Um, and so it's, yep, that's where it's housed. And basically, it's a, it's a collaborative. Um, it has over 90 partner organizations around the country, um, all organizations that care about physical activity promotion in schools. Um, and yeah, some are nonprofits, some are educational institutions. Some are businesses that provide some kind of product or resource for schools um, to promote physical activity. And so, uh, yeah, they serve man, tens of thousands of students and thousands of schools across the country. And basically anyone can become an active schools champion um, just by going onto the website and registering for free. And then that gives you access to all the resources through active schools. So how did UNC get involved with this? And I, I know all of you professionally, so when I hear active schools, I think like UNC active schools, that you have such a, a big partnership with them. So where where does that kind of, your research group specifically or the university, how did you partner with them? Yeah, so the faculty members, you know, me, Jen, and Jamie have been involved with active schools for a long time. Um, in terms of service, like, you know, serving on committees and strategic advisory councils and stuff like that. Um, and then let's see, I guess it was three years ago, um, Active Schools was really looking to develop its new iteration. At the time, we called it Active Schools 2.0, um, transitioning into the future. And at UNC, we have the UNC Active Schools Institute that pretty much has been doing work around school-based physical activity for a long time. And it was just a really obvious connection. Uh, we already had a relationship established. We knew the types of work that was being done. And so we entered into a strategic partnership with Active Schools um, just over two years ago that kind of formalized our connection. And that really you know, put us in charge of a lot of the work to transition Active Schools into its new version. Yeah, I. Um, so is, 
is the Doctro program that you have, is that linked with active schools? How does that work? Is that like, do you have like a way, like a master's degree or a doctoral program that works with active schools? Or is it just because you have a partnership with UNC and active schools, those students tend to work on these types of projects? It's more the second thing that you said. Um, our master's program is around physical activity leadership and embeds and integrates a lot of the active schools concepts into it. Um, our doctoral students traditionally have some kind of interest in school-based physical activity promotion. Um, and of course, our lab, our research lab, just does a lot of work around this. Um, but it's not the only thing we do. We also have other projects that, you know, serve different needs and purposes. Okay. So I, I spent some time looking over, one, the videos, the documents, the PDFs uh, that you've developed for active schools. And first and foremost, like really cool, like high quality videos short to the point um you have, you even have really good pictures everybody's always smiling in the pictures and the pdfs like uh but i mean this is a huge 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 project looking at it like that's one of those documents is a master's thesis that a student stayed like spends hours and hours and hours on and you've created four you've probably created over a hundred pages of free resources um, for for teachers and policymakers and doctoral students and master's students. So, um, how did how did you do that? What were the um, what are the resources that you made, and what was the kind of process of you putting this together? Yeah. So the shift in active schools to the 2.0 version is really emphasizing evidence based practice. And so the first thing we did was took a really deep dive into the research literature on what works around, you know, physical activity promotion in schools at different levels and different types of schools, um, and really just trying to, to understand what the evidence is out there, what works and what doesn't work. Um, and so the first step was creating a gigantic repository of research. Um, so a giant spreadsheet, tons of different research articles. And what we tried to do was we tried to prioritize those higher tiers of evidence um, your systematic reviews, your meta-analyses, um, your big research syntheses from organizations like CDC and stuff like that, you know, the ones that are really focused on the evidence. Um, and we tried to look sort of broadly and over time at, at, you know, what's really happening and what do we know at this point. And so that was the first step. And the foundational document, the guidance document, is really what pulls all that research together into one gigantic synthesis. And we considered, you know, models that are out there already. So obviously the WISC model, whole school, community, whole child is sort of the big overarching, you know, approach to school health and wellness. And then CISBAP has been around for years, the five components, you know, so we considered all of that. But as we were going through the research, uh, we ended up coming up with a, the nine essential elements of an active school culture. And we went that way, first of all, because the term culture and even the concept of a culture came up over and over in terms of how to actually make this work. Um, it can't be a one-off program that you do here and there. It really has to be embedded and supported by the entire school community, and it has to be intentional in the way that it's um, implemented and evaluated. And so um, that was sort of the big thing. And, and the nine essential elements, they include the five components of CISPAP. Those are still in there. Um, but certain things are a little different. So like diversity, equity, and inclusion is very explicitly threaded into every one of the essential elements of an active school culture. 
Um, and then there's things like planning, implementation, and evaluation that derives a lot of its, you know, steps and focus on implementation science. Um, that was something that in a lot of the guidance documents, like CDC's guidance document, it's in there, but it's not explicitly in the model. And really in the research, it shows that you have to be very intentional about the way you plan, implement, and evaluate for things to be successful. So that's the kind of stuff that showed up in these nine essential elements. And so did you, as a part of this process, you developed that new active schools? Because in the videos and stuff you have, like, comes from WISC, goes to like CISPAP as a part of that, and then the active schools with the triangle in the middle, that is something that you developed in the last year or you're just launching it now. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So these these foundational guidance documents came out last summer, 2022. And yes, that that new framework for an active school culture was developed through this process. Yeah. And and reading through those, you do see like that culturally responsive teaching is really highlighted in there. You you talk about, you know, understanding the context of your students like that and that every single school should have something a little bit different. And there's not a one size fits all. Every school should do this because students are different and students have different needs and urban or, you know, very rural or places with a lot of sunshine and parks and other places with a lot of snow. And they're still in the U.S., but they should have a different format or different um, aspects to take into consideration. So, um, again, I, I just... I love going through those um, through those documents because it shows it it just shows like a really high quality, dense but easy to read. Uh, and if any any of the grad students out there are looking for a list of very relevant citations, and that that fifty page document, you go to the bottom and you I was just scrolling through there and you have basically everybody who's and anybody in this after school out of school like physical activity stuff like uh, Shape America reports, CDC reports, systematic reviews. I mean, it, it's a it's a wealth of knowledge. So, yeah, that's really what we were shooting for in that first document is sort of research heavy, uh, really set the stage and try to give the, the justification, the rationale that's needed with the research. And then we obviously recognize that we can't just do that. We have to have something more practical and translational too out there. Yeah. Um, thanks, Brian. So, Jen, I'm wondering if I can uh, uh, turn to you here. I'm wondering if you can introduce the school implementation guide and then the menus of evidence-based practices. What what are those? Yeah, uh, sure. So the school implementation guide is more of it takes the information found in that first document that's very research-heavy and presents it in a more of a how-to guide for practitioners. Um, there are several different pieces to that document. Each of the nine essential elements is, is presented with a rationale for why you could or should include this element in your school to, to create that active school culture. Um, something that you can use with, you know, so you want to try to advocate that with principals or other people in the school to get them on board. Um, and then it has a list of the evidence-based practices uh, for each element, and then also includes tips and tools and resources and external links that you can go to to get more information or more help or support um, for that particular element. 
Um, I'm going to give an example. So in the school implementation guide, um, the so all of the elements are presented, but as an example, the physical activity during the school day, <clears throat> the rationale provided shares the importance of, you know, why we would want to do this. So schools um, provide all this time for students. Students spend, spend a lot of time in school. So, you know, there are opportunities during that time for students to move. Um, an evidence-based practice, there are four listed here, but one, one example is providing regular opportunities for students to be active during the school day. And then more specifically, plan opportunities for physical activity during recess breaks. I'm sorry, recess breaks, transition, passing times, and during classroom time. And adjusting the school schedule to make traditionally sedentary times more active. Um, there are several tips provided, <clears throat> such as any any amount of physical activity is good for kids. Find times, places throughout the day to get students up and moving. And then some tools and resources are listed, such as the active classroom resources from active schools, action for healthy kids, active outdoor recess documents, and classroom physical activity resources from the CDC. And those are uh, linked and they can just click on it and it'll take them to that resource. Um, Taking it a step further, the menus of evidence-based practice take all of those um, evidence uh, practices, sorry, evidence-based practices that were listed in the school implementation guide, and they're explicitly uh, listed for practitioners or other school members to look specifically at what they should do. It's almost like a checklist. So for each element, they list the uh, evidence-based practices under each category. So similarly, during the physical activity during the school day, under the recess and break section, it lists items like ensure that all students, regardless of grade level, have multiple breaks throughout the day where there are physical, physical activity opportunities available, provide supervision by trained adults, ensure access to play equipment and facilities during recess and breaks, and create engaging play areas using playground markings that encourage activity and or designate zones for various types types of activities. That's just a snippet. <laughs> um, but what's great about this document specifically is that if I want to increase physical activity in my school, I can go to the menus and I can look at all of the practices listed for each element. I can do this in two ways. I can use it as a, a way to see what we're already doing that we know is rooted in evidence. We know that works and literally check the boxes. The other thing I could do is use it as a planning guide. Um, look for things that I know would work in my context, in my school community, as you were saying earlier, not it's not one size fits all. Um, and, and plan ahead. These are the things I'd like to try to implement this year. Um, something really exciting about this is that, you know, schools can do this on their own. Um, and for just, just for the goal of, in, of increasing physical activity, but active schools also has a recognition program around this, around this, where schools can submit an application where they provide evidence that they've implemented these practices. And then a review takes place by an active schools team, and then 
They can earn badges for specific elements, depending on the extent to which they've implemented it. And then ultimately, they can earn uh, flags to fly at their school. So um, we recently just awarded the first ever active schools distinct distinguished school flag um that i just saw and posted on twitter it was uh, already flying you know hanging in the school proudly along with other you know banners that the school has earned in other areas um so that's really exciting that schools can not only just do this for the good of their school but they can also get recognized for it um and so we're hoping that a lot more schools will get involved and apply for recognition because we know that there's already so many schools already doing these things or planning to do them and so you know highlighting them is really black um and and i'm gonna push to jamie here because uh, i cited your paper on the finnish active schools and the u.s active schools and the irish uh uh, program as well on my Fulbright application that's due on Friday. Boom. So thank you for that paper. Very helpful. But is that where the flag came from? Or is that like an idea? Or is that kind of like, why why do you want schools to have recognition? Is it Or is it like a blue ribbon thing? Like most people that have been in the US, they hear blue ribbon school and you're like, wow, that's a good school. I want to send my kid to a blue ribbon school. Is that kind of what you were trying to do with the uh, with the flag of like saying this is a place that values physical activity and this is a place where they're going to have opportunities? Yeah, I think for us, it was really, you know, twofold. One, to provide that recognition, but also from an advocacy standpoint, I think there are so many schools doing great things around active schools, but it kind of goes unnoticed sometimes within the community. And I think... Um, it's a huge kudos to the schools for someone to walk in and be like, wow, you're an active school. Like, what does that mean? What is, why do you have that flag there? And so, you know, I think the idea of the recognition program definitely came from us looking at what other countries are doing, what other programs are doing. But I mean, it follows, you know, along the same lines of when people get a teacher of the year recognition and they can get a banner to fly in their gym, you know, we really wanted to celebrate the active school champions that are doing this work. And I think having that formal recognition program with a physical element to be able to display in their school um, in some capacity, really sort of, you know, from an advocacy standpoint and just even, you know, thinking about, you know, how physical activity and things are sometimes not super valued. I think that cultural element that Brian was mentioning earlier that really cements that, you know, you walk into the school and you see this next to maybe the blue ribbon banners or, you know, different things that the school is being recognized for. And it brings physical activity up to the same level as some of those other things, which I think is really important in the work that we're doing. Thanks. And um, I also wanted to ask, um, you know, for those who listen, I do actually have a script of questions that I typically want to ask, but I'm going off script. So whoever wants to answer this, um, there's another document that I spent a lot of time looking over, which was the, um, let me pull up the exact name, Active Schools Evaluation Handbook. Um, and I found that to be a great resource, meaning my students today are going to get that in the analysis of teaching class because we are searching through instruments to uh, assess students or assess teachers 
and they're trying to look all over through research papers and different um, you know, rubrics to assess teacher behavior and all that stuff. And I just looked at that and you just have so many links to, you know, how to evaluate students, how to evaluate um, different things that are going on in schools. And um, can you talk to me about that? Um, I know, I, th I think Brian, you were lead on that with uh, Aaron and uh, Peter. So. Yeah, so that, believe it or not, was the first foundational document that was created even before the other ones because there was such an identified need in the field around measurement, assessment, and evaluation. Um, we know in PE, it's it's historically an area that's challenging for PE teachers. Um, but then really in schools, we know that if you have data, if you assess, if you can report out on outcomes associated with your programming and stuff, you're more likely to get resources allocated and get support for it. So that was actually a really early need that was identified by Charlene Bergeson, who was the executive director of Active Schools at the time. And yeah, partnered with Aaron Centeo and Peter Stopker on that and basically just divided it into process and outcome evaluation and tried to give a bunch of different tools that schools, we were really looking at practical tools as best we could. Not researchy, you know, researchers, we've got our own stuff going on. But we tried to find the tools that schools could actually use to practically evaluate their programs. And again, not just physical activity. We know it's connected to so many different outcomes and benefits. And so we tried to give sort of a comprehensive view of that where, man, if you collected data on half of the stuff that's in there, you would have a lot of support for what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, it was a great document. Uh, let me let me go back to you, Jen, uh, just to kind of tie, tie this one up. The um, guiding framework document, um, you know, Brian talked about is really rooted in research. How, how are the other guiding documents different or are they, are they similar? How, how does that work? So the repository Brian talked about, um, massive Excel document, which really we were looking for in the end, what were the evidence, what are the practices that the research said works. We have evidence that the practices that are listed in the menus and the school implementation guide came directly from that, that research heavy document. So, um, you know, it's all linked, it's all related, but we basically took the results of research that we've found and put it in terms that work for practitioners. So I can't pinpoint exactly where this came from, but we found specifically in the literature that you need to provide supervision by trained adults during recess. That that just my, most minor little bit of uh, suggested uh, practice is not just something we made up that was specifically listed somewhere in the research that we found through that first very large <laughs> um, document. So I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, so basically those documents are a little bit more quote-unquote reader-friendly in a way that there's not, you know, McMullen, Krauss, 2022, and then people are getting mixed up. It's just these are the facts, but they are supported by evidence. And if you want to find that evidence, you can go to this more research-heavy document if let's say if you're a doc student or a master student or a professor, you're trying to look for that. So that's much better said than what I said. So yes. 
can I just like reiterate something that a lot of times what we've found, and I think for all of us that look at these types of documents on a regular basis, a lot of sort of the recommendations or guidance documents, there were practices that were listed in there that are not supported by any kind of research. They're sort of just things that people would say, oh, like, this is a really good thing to do, so you should try it, you know? And I think that that's one thing. Yes, some of those things might work in some cases for some people, but we really wanted this to be based off of what the evidence is telling us because then people aren't necessarily wasting their time with practices that that may work but might not also. So these are ones that have a proven track record of working, yes, across different contexts and different things, obviously, and that might not always work in your context, but I think that that's one thing that was really important to us is, you know, for example, you know, I always think of like shared use agreements, right? And it's like they're they're referenced all the time, but there's very little literature that, you know, about those. And so is that really something that works? And so thinking about is there evidence to back the recommendations um, for schools and teachers and active school champions? Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, so I guess it's similar to like, integration like integrating academic subjects everybody says to do it but if you look at the evidence there isn't a lot of research that shows that it actually works it it totally could but nobody has gone through and done really rigorous continuous research on integrating academic subjects into physical education and showing that it, it benefits both both the groups the academics and the physical activity or physical education part yeah, if I could share just a quick word on that too. Um, we actually define evidence-based practice in that guidance document. And the way that we define it is it's actually at the intersection of the best available research evidence. So acknowledging that we may not actually have all the answers to everything at this moment, but what does the best available research evidence say? And then it's like overlapping circles. Imagine your Venn diagram. It's not just the research, it's what what resources and capacity does your school community have to do these types of things. And then the third circle is the context. Who is your population? Who are your adults? Who are your kids? What does your community look like? And so really we define evidence-based practice at the intersection of all three of those things. And we also have to acknowledge that the research is not always you know totally conclusive about things, but we're going to take the best that's out there at the moment. Well, and can I just add to that? Sorry to, to cut you off, Risto. But I think that one thing we had a long conversation about this, and I was all of this is coming back to me now as we're sitting here uh, digesting the process that we went through. But we had this long conversation because initially we were looking at, you know, kind of levels of evidence-based practice, right? And like sort of the gold star being these things that happened in randomized controlled trials with and then we started to have this conversation, especially going back to what Brian was saying about like equity, diversity and inclusion. Right. And this notion that most schools don't have, you know, the funds associated with them to be able to do what was actually done within randomized control trials or they don't have the access to those expensive sometimes resources. And so that was something that we were very aware of from the very beginning was, OK, cool, this might be from a research perspective, a gold star. But practically implementing something like this within a school is like not super realistic for most most schools, most settings. So how can we kind of provide sort of this 
here's what you can do with what you have. And, you know, here are the supports and resources and things available to you for free or low cost or whatever um, to ensure that everyone can have the opportunity to be successful. Because if we say, do this thing that is almost out of reach for most schools, then this wouldn't be a practically relevant set of documents. And that's a good point too, because if you think about these big, big, big grant funded studies, oftentimes they have line items that say, pay this person $25 an hour to come in and run the after school program. Pay this person $25 an hour to run the before school program. So yes, we can show that this works, but when the grant ends or somebody reads it from, I don't know, some school in Idaho and they're like, hey, we want to do this. They're like, well, where's the $15,000 in salaries just to be able to run this for a semester? And so I think that that's, that's a great point and what's practically available and kind of the, you know, the story behind how do we scale up research after it's done and is the research that we're doing, you know, showing sustainable programming? Because a lot of it is, yeah, there's there's some cool, very, very cool volunteer programs that parents can come in and help their kids. But other than that, you need salaries. And if you don't have any budget to give to physical activity, I mean, how do you how do you run the programming then? And that actually makes me think of the implementation science research too. That's sort of embedded within the non-essential elements is it's not that you take, you read a research study, here's the methods and protocols they use, and then we completely mirror that in our school and try to do exactly what was done with Fidelity. It's not really about that. It's more about adapting the programming that was done or the intervention to make it fit with my community, our capacity, what our needs are. You know, it's not that rigid definition of like, you know, high fidelity research implementation kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so Jamie, let me let me jump back to you. Your group also developed a PEAT integration guide, so physical education, teacher education integration guide, um, in addition to the foundational documents. Um, so you developed this thing for higher education. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we sort of thought, okay, this is great. We have all these documents that can be useful in many ways to many different stakeholders. But at the end of the day, we really need to be thinking about how we're training future teachers to be able to be active school champions in schools. And we know that, you know, there are some programs across the country that have, you know, really high emphasis on developing physical activity leadership skills. Um, there's others that are more kind of purist, you know, PEAT programs, physical education, teacher education programs that don't necessarily focus on those elements um, outside of physical education itself. And so we wanted to really think about how could we um, create some, some supports for schools, um, higher education universities, to be able to integrate um, assignments across their curriculum, across, you know, so let's say your four-year program or whatever that looks like in your setting, in order to be able to prepare people to take on the role of physical activity leader and active school champion. I think while we call it the Pete, um, Pete Program Integration Guide, I think that this could actually be used outside of Pete as well in like elementary education and other programs that are preparing teachers or school professionals um, in any capacity. So I just wanted to add that um, caveat there. 
But really, this guide was developed after reviewing the research and literature on integrating comprehensive school physical activity programs into PEAT programs. Of note, um, you might remember in 2017, there was a two-part special feature in JOPERD on integrating CISFAP into PEAT programs, and it was titled Sharing Insights and Identifying Strategies. And so we really started there with kind of reviewing ideas from some of the pioneering institutions across the country who have really been on the forefront of integrating CISFAP into their programs. Um, and we reached out to some of the authors in that special issue to see if they would be willing to share assignments that they use in their programs um, to kind of um, highlight sort of what we now call the nine essential elements. Obviously, not they weren't going based off of the nine essential elements, but we were able to map um, various assignments onto the nine essential elements that that people have used in their program. So special shout out to, um, well, our colleagues at UNC who had created um, a lot of the assignments as well, but also Dr. Colin Webster, Hans Vandermars, um, Kate Egan, and Kent Lorenz, who contributed assignments um, to this effort. And the guide really is, is, is cool because if you have some time to look at it, um, the assignments are completely done for you in there, and you can figure out sort of where to put them in. But we've also provided guidance around where we think kind of maybe some of the assignments fit better in early program and your mid program and sort of late program. So, you know, more practicum student teacher type stuff versus, you know, your intro to PE classes where some of the assignments might fit better in there. Um, and it provides sort of student learning outcomes and a high level overview of content and learning experiences that can be integrated kind of at each of those different time periods. So we developed learning outcomes for physical education, teacher education students um, that align with each of the nine essential elements. So if you were trying to teach your students, Risto, at George Mason about, you know, an active school culture and the nine essential elements, you could use these assignments at different time points in your program or even within one course. So I know some schools have like a CISPAP course, for example. Um, you could use these assignments in whatever way makes sense for you within your program structure. And each of the each of the assignments within the PEAT integration guide um, has sample activities. And again, you can modify those depending on what you need um, need them for. Um, they have a purpose statement, background information, as I mentioned, learning outcomes, step-by-step um, -step instructions for students. And then they all also come with a recommend recommended evaluation rubric. So we developed rubrics for each of the assignments as well. And of course, those might need to be adapted based off of requirements of different programs and whatnot. And then we also have at the end of the PD integration guide, a matrix um, that shows the nine essential elements of active school culture crossover with competencies and the Shape America national standards for initial physical education, teacher education. So we can actually show you where sort of some of our assignments overlap with those um, initial teaching standards. We really obviously hope that the guide is helpful for P programs around the country, like as they start to prepare um, kind of the next generation but it was something really practical that we thought, you know, could not only get people to start interacting more with the documents, but something that people could actually take and use um, in their programs as they're trying to integrate more of this content into into Pete. Yeah, and those those rubrics are awesome. They're like 
on a hundred frame scale, you can just go in and copy and paste and use that rubric and score uh, for those activities. I saw at the end there's like an e-portfolio rubric that you can uh, you can make and another what fifty page PDF. And so let me ask you this as we kind of close this up. These are that's a tremendous amount of work, and you've put out high quality stuff. There, you know, videos are produced. the The PDFs look good. You have good quality images. You have hours and hours and hours of professors going in and adding content to this. So, how is this all funded? Where, like, where do you? I mean, one, it's amazing that it's free. It's awesome. Like, you could totally see a for profit company making something like this and then providing it at cost or as an evaluation or like, hey, if you hire our company, you can use these resources, but they're all for free. So where, who's funding? Is this still government funded or has it been uh, kind of moved into what you talked about earlier? How does this work? Yeah. So it's funny you bring that up because there were conversations around, you know, is this something that could be a revenue generator for active schools, active schools to keep, you know, the mission going and stuff like that. And we kind of, you know, active schools went back to the idea of equity, um, that we really want everyone to have access to these resources. We want all schools to be doing this. And so there really is a commitment on active school side and even Action for Healthy Kids as the larger home organization to keep all these tools and resources um, open source. And, you know, Active Schools has been funded by a number of folks over the years, a number of businesses and organizations. Um, it's transitioned over time. Um, you know, currently fundraising is going on to keep things going, but that is sort of the background piece is it is it is externally funded. It's actually not government funded. Um, I think originally, you know, some of, some of it was, but it's transitioned out of that now and it's through nonprofit fundraising is the way that the organization continues. Um, and yeah, there is a commitment to keep this going open source. So uh, we are going to be developing new tools and resources in this coming year. And the idea is to continue to have them be free. Um, the only thing I might also point out, Risto, just in case it doesn't come up later, is we actually hosted an active school summit too. Um, so I think that's important that we had a, a virtual version sort of near the end of the pandemic. And then we had an in-person version uh, last summer in Greeley. Um, and this is kind of where we've been trying to share out this information and get people on board and excited. And um, we will be hosting an active school summit again next summer in Greeley, Colorado in July too. Can I also just add that like this goes far beyond Brian, Jen and I, there's so many people involved in the development of these. And it was alluded to at the beginning, the graduate students and, and some of actually even our undergraduate students have been involved in um, the work on these documents um, over the last number of years. And I think, you know, Brian mentioned earlier the work with Aaron Santeo and Peter Stopker, and there's like an entire sort of research group that also works under Active Schools um, Advisory Board. And so I think that this is a testament to kind of different stakeholders, like within our kind of realm, our field kind of coming together to to do this work. And so I just wanted to reiterate that, that it's not sort of Brian, Jen and I sitting up there in our little tower, like saying like, ha like, what are we going to create today? Right. So um, there's been a huge team um, of people involved in, in doing all of these things. And the kind of funny part when you're talking about the videos and things, I mean, you know, that's 
those were generated by our team and looking at the strengths we had within our team and saying, okay, so-and-so has a very nice voice. Let's have them be the voiceover person on this. And, and, you know, this person is really good at creating graphics and tying those things together. And so that's been kind of a fun part of it is that there's sort of been something for everybody to excel at within this process. And I think for any of you that are doing collaborative work, um, you can recognize the importance of ensuring that you have people on your team that that have different strengths and can bring different things to the table. And I and I love this idea of you all sitting in a tower because this is this is a podcast so you can't see it, but Brian has a picture of Gunston Hall with a tower from UNC, and I'm just envisioning that you three are up there plotting the takeover of active schools. So. Um, but thank you. So just for the record, everybody was laughing, but everybody's on mute to be respectful. So there are a lot of, lot of laughs there. That was a good joke. Thanks. Silence. Okay. Anyway. Um, so it was such a great joke. Thank you. I need, I need that confirmation. Um, I appreciate your time. And most of all, I appreciate the work that you and your team have done. Um, all of these documents that we talked about, the PEAT integration guide, the more research heavy stuff, the menus, the, the assessment documents are linked in the show notes and you can just go on there um, and click right onto that website. But basically it's afterschoolsus.org and then you can kind of go through there, but all of the links are in there. Um, Brian, Jen, Jamie, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time and, and you sharing this stuff. Thanks for so fun chatting. Thanks so much. And hope everyone finds the documents useful. Thanks, Resto. Yep. All right. So that's all we have for you on this one. Um, again, check out the show notes. And uh, thanks for listening.